0: And if you will, please turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, and I'm going to go ahead and read the whole letter here. So Jude, starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James... Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds... Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the glory of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 20 and 21 of this chapter, which I'll read to you again here. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. A medieval poet once said that the soul is more where it loves than where it lives. This is certainly the case for the Christian. You you see, the Christian is one whose treasure is in heaven. And so his heart is there also. All his affections are on things above and and all his thoughts are hid with Christ in heaven. And all his life is, is directed towards the glory of God. Just like the Israelites lived in the wilderness with their tents facing the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. So the Christian lives with his life aimed towards heaven. The Christian's love is found ultimately in heaven. And so the Christian life is is a heavenly life. The Puritan Thomas Shepard once said that, that this is the glory of a Christian. That he has turned his back upon the world and lives and waits for the coming of the Lord. And so a Christian is is a person who doesn't care so much for the things of this world. But he he makes spiritual things his focus. He makes use of temporal things out of necessity, like like clothing and and shelter and food. But, But even in those temporal things, he looks towards their eternal ends. He desires to use all of them for the glory of God. And so his hope is not in this world because he knows that nothing in this world can save him. There's no amount of fame, no amount of fortune that will ever be enough to save him. And so all his hope is found in his, his faith in Christ. And so whatever he does, he does it according to his chief end. And he understands this chief end to be, as our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to, to, uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so whether he eats or whether he drinks or whatsoever he does, he does to the glory of God. Everything the Christian does ought to be motivated by his love for God. And so we come to a text this morning that exhorts those of us who are the beloved in Christ, those who are Christians, to keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude here is ultimately warning us against apostasy. Now, apostasy is a falling away from the truth of the gospel. Or in other words, it's a forsaking of the gospel. To be an apostate, is to at one time to, to have professed to be a Christian and then later to turn away from the Christian faith. And Jude's, Jude exhorts us not to forsake our faith in the gospel. He warns us not to turn our backs on Christ. See, Jude wrote this letter for this purpose. It was to warn the church about the presence and the prevalence of false teachers who have apostatized from the church. And he wrote this letter to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered unto the saints, as he says in verse 3. He tells us that um, there are those who, once having professed faith in Christ, have later come to deny him by teaching false doctrines. He says in verse 4, There are certain men who crept in unnoticed. That is, they crept into the church. They had confessed faith in Christ and they seemingly bore the fruit of a true Christian believer. And yet they turned the grace of our God into sensuality and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They were once members in good standing in the church. And yet they denied Christ. And then Jude goes on to argue against these apostates. He says in verse 19 that they've separated themselves from the church. And they don't have the spirit of God in them. And then in verse 20, he turns his attention to true believers. And he gives those who are in Christ several exhortations pertaining to our topic this morning. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't turn your back on the faith that you've claimed. Don't forsake Christ in the gospel. Don't become an apostate. He says, the apostates have all fallen away. But you, beloved... Keep yourselves in the love of God. He's warning us about the danger of apostasy, and he's he's exhorting us to persevere in the faith. Sometimes we we take too narrow a view of apostasy. We might be able to think of someone in, in our own lives who at one time was 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 seemed to be a faithful believer, attended church, sang the songs, prayed the prayers. But then over time, they ended up forsaking the faith and leaving the church altogether. And these situations are are often seen and heard of by others. And sometimes they even become these dramatic deconversion stories, so to speak. And these cases tend to be heartbreaking. And they're tragic. And they're memorable to those who witness them. And they should serve as as an example to us all, a warning to us all. But apostasy isn't always so dramatic. You see, what might first come to your mind when you think of apostasy might not actually be the most common kind of apostasy at all. The most common kind of apostasy is more subtle than that. It often goes unseen and unheard, and unnoticed. You see, the most common kind of apostasy is a silent and a secret forsaking of Christ in the heart. Apostasy is ultimately a condition of the heart. And so it doesn't always express itself externally. An apostate can sit week after week in church, An apostate can engage in private and family worship. An apostate can look, act, and speak like a true believer, yet in his heart, he has forsaken the Lord. He might not admit it to anyone. And he might honestly not even know the true state of his own soul because he never inquires within himself about where he stands before God. He might have himself convinced that that his heart is right with Christ. He might believe that he at one point genuinely gave his life to Christ. And so he thinks that he's got nothing to worry about. But there's no life in his faith. And there's no love of God in his heart. Apostasy is a very real, real danger to us all. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would all be apostates this day. But the Lord in his goodness has has given us his grace. And he's given us various means that that he's promised to bless, to to strengthen and to fortify our faith. To help us to, to keep ourselves in the love of God when we make good and diligent use of them by faith. So today I want to consider what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, as, as many of you may know, I uh, recently started working at a bank. And um, it didn't take me too long to realize something about human behavior. You see, when when a person walks into the bank with, with a lot of money in their pocket or or with something valuable in their purse or or in their pocket or something, they tend to act a little bit differently than they normally would. They're more careful in the way that they walk. They're more observant. They're more attentive to their surroundings. You see, when a person possesses something of great value, they want to take care of it. And they diligently watch over it to make sure nothing happens to it, to make sure they don't lose it from their possession. And how much more should we cherish and value the love of God than we do our money? Shouldn't we go through this life careful in our walk, watching over every step so that we don't lose our love of God? Shouldn't we do everything in our power to preserve and to strengthen this love? That's what the word keep means means in our text. It's it's to diligently watch and to guard the precious gift of God's love. Now there's been some debate here historically whether the love that Jude is talking about is passive or active. A passive love in this context would, would point to the love of Christ towards us. This verse could, grammatically speaking, be saying Keep yourselves in the love which God has for you. And this would make sense given what we read elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, this is one of the exhortations that Jesus gives us in John 15. Uh, he says there in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The Greek word translated here as abide means to remain in or to continue in. So, essentially, he's saying, continue in my love. And how are we to do that? He he says in the next verse, if you keep my commandments, you will abide or continue in my love. This continuing and and this abiding are just different ways of of communicating the same thing. Jesus commands us to, to keep ourselves in the love that he has for us by our obedience. Not that our obedience merits anything before God. There's nothing that we can do to merit his love. But our obedience is, is a proper means to express our love for God. And to confirm to our souls his love for us. And to experience his love in our lives. Oftentimes, when when we fall into a pattern of sin, we lose the sense of God's love for us. This is due to to God withdrawing the light of his countenance, as our confession says. When we forsake God by our actions, we, we get a sense of him withdrawing his grace towards us, don't we? We lose the comfort of his love. so Jesus warns us to guard ourselves against these sins, to continue in the love of God. How precious is this love of God towards the Christian? The Christian is, is the recipient of all the benefits of the greatest expression of God's love. John writes, in this was manifested the love of God towards us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. It's only for the love of God that we could have any hope in Christ. It was in love that God predestined us. It was in love that that God sent his son for us. It was in love that God has quickened us by his spirit. And it's only for the freeness and the liberality of God's love that he's redeemed us and has brought, him to himself, brought us to himself. And considering the freeness of God's love, Thomas Manton, the, the Puritan, he wrote, He hath more delight in pardoning than we have in salvation. And he is more ready to give than we are to ask. The love of God is is precious. And His it's his love for us that causes us to love him. So keep yourselves in this love. Treasure it. Cherish it. Keep it. Guard it. Watch over it. The love of God is precious. And if it truly is precious to us, then we should watch our every step, guarding our hearts, from tolerating any sin in our lives. But then, grammatically speaking, and this verse can also be talking about an active love, meaning it could be pointing to the love that we have towards God. In this sense, it would mean keep yourselves in the love which you have for God. And I I, I think the immediate context of Jude demands that this should be taken as as the primary interpretation of this verse. Although God's love for us and our love for God are intimately connected. You see, we, we read in 1 John that we loved him because he first loved us. Thomas Manton writes, love is like an echo. It returneth what it receiveth. It's a reflex, a reverberation or a casting back of God's beam and flame upon himself. Our love to God is a reflection or a response to his love toward us. And therefore, the greater sense that we have of God's love, the stronger will our love towards him will be. And so it it could be argued that both the passive and the active sense is applied in this verse. It 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 encourages us as believers to cultivate our love for God by considering and remembering and growing in our assurance of his love for us. But I would say primarily, Jude is pointing to the importance of, of maintaining a love for and a faith in the Lord our God. You see, in in concluding his warning against those who have apostatized, those, those who have left the faith, he leaves us with an exhortation to continue in our love for God. You see, we are weak in the flesh, and we're prone to wander from our love for God. Andrew Gray noted that love is a tender thing. It must either be kept well or else it will be lost. Can any true believer argue that that that's not the case with his own soul? In the depths of our hearts, we are all prone to apostasy, to forsake our God and Savior. Therefore, we ought to take heed to this exhortation. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We can't afford to lose this this precious gift of God that was given to us by grace. And it certainly is precious, even as imperfect as it might be in our own lives. And so in order to encourage ourselves, to keep ourselves in the love of God, we ought to stir up our hearts to love him. We ought to meditate on him, to meditate on his love, and to meditate on our love for him. Consider, first of all, the source of our love for God. The fountain of love is God himself. John tells us in 1 John, That love is of God and that God is love. Paul tells us in Galatians that love is the fruit of the Spirit. Our love for God has a divine origin. We are enabled to love God only once the Spirit has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. And speaking of regeneration, the canons of Dort say that The manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life. Nevertheless, they rest satisfied with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they are enabled to believe with the heart and to love their Savior. Our love of God is precious because it has God as its source. also consider that our love of God is precious because of its object. We are enabled by the Spirit, not only to love God as our creator, but also as our Father. As one who loves us and, and who cares for us and who wants the best for us. If you're in Christ, you've been granted all the privileges of a son of God. You can turn to him as a loving father. And so you may draw to him with confidence of his fatherly goodness. And that's why we're told in 1 John that by our love for God, we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Matthew Henry says, happy are they who shall have holy fiducial boldness before the judge at that day. Who shall be able to lift up their heads and look him in the face as knowing he is their friend and advocate. And lastly, consider the effects of our love for God. By our love of God, we may have enjoyment of God. He becomes our greatest desire. In our greatest treasure. You'll begin to see the foolishness of this world. And you'll earnestly begin to seek after the presence of God in all things. And you'll find that in him you have all the desires of your heart. And it won't seem strange to you anymore to to read of that man who, who traded all that he had for the pearl of great price. Because you also would have found that precious pearl yourself nothing in this world can measure up to its beauty. And also by our love for God, we may have a deeper communion with God. We'll begin to love all that draws us closer to him. And we'll begin to hate anything that separates us from him. And so we'll love his worship. And we'll love the means of grace. Because in them, we meet with God. And and then we'll, we'll hate and despise our sins because they separate us from him and cause our love to grow cold. And it's this decay of love that causes us to pray empty prayers and to perform empty worship and ultimately to have an empty faith. And so keep yourselves in the love of God. And to do so, flee from your sins, because they're one of the primary enemies to our love for God. And so we see that the love of God is precious. And that being the case, Jude doesn't leave us with, without direction for cultivating a deeper love for God. He gives us two means in, in verse 20. That when done in faith, will serve to keep us in the love of God. The first is to build yourselves up in the faith. Now, Jude is instructing us here to build ourselves up in the doctrine of our faith. He's not only referring to the grace of faith. He's not just talking about believing the gospel. He's also commanding us to grow in our knowledge and understanding ...of the faith once delivered to the saints. Now this implies... ...the the continuing of a work... ...which has already begun. So before we, we can consider what it means to build ourselves up in the faith... ...we need to understand what the foundation of our faith is. And that foundation is Christ. Christ is the starting point. If you don't have Christ as your foundation then you'll have nothing but sinking sand to build upon. You'll never experience the love of God apart from Christ. Without Christ, you'll miss out on all the benefits that we just consider. Without Christ, you, you can't approach God as Father. Without Christ, you can't enjoy God. Without Christ, you can't commune with God. If you're not building upon Christ, then you are building in vain. You need Christ first and foremost. And once you come to Christ, you're commanded to be built up in the faith. There's no stagnation in the Christian life. It's either you are progressing toward heaven or you're backsliding. You're either being built up in the faith. Or you're being torn down. The Christian ought to be constantly and continuously growing in his faith. There's no point at which a Christian can say, "I'm holy enough. I know enough about God. I don't. I don't need to to continue going to church. I don't need to continue reading His Word. I, I can stop all all my Christian labor." That's nonsense. We must always seek to grow in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or for five decades, you must build yourself up in the faith. I love love what David said in, in Psalm 119. He says that I have seen an end to all perfection, but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. There's a contrast there. He's he's saying that everything in this world is limited in its perfection, but there is no end to the perfection of the word of God. The beauty and perfection of of the word is more than we can ever imagine. So grow in the word and and let the word grow in you. Meditate on it. Let it sink into the very depths of your soul. But the Greek here implies more than just a building up of ourselves in the faith. It also implies that Christians must build up one another in the faith. That means that as a church, you must seek the edification of one another. You ought to encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith to grow in their love for God and in their love for the word. And encourage each other in holiness. Hold each other accountable. Talk about your struggles. Rejoice in your victories. (laughs) Wrestle with doctrine together. Pray together. God puts us into a community for a reason. Because he knows that iron sharpens iron. And the best way for us to grow is to grow together. So build each other up. But this command also challenges those who are parents. Christian parents have the responsibility to ensure that their children are being built up in the faith. So parents, you must do all that's in your power to see that your children are being fed a godly diet. Families ought to worship together, to pray together. To read the word together. To grow in the faith together. Encouraging one another. To keep a love for God and to have a true, lively faith. Because apostasy is a real danger to us all. Gavin Beers, a pastor in the Free Church of Scotland, continuing. He preached a sermon recently in which he stated that that there tends to be a generational danger to the church. I I, I think we should take note of this. Churches tend to apostatize after three generations. He said the first generation in a church tends to be faithful. They come to strong religious convictions by the grace of God. And these convictions are, are written on their hearts. And they won't waver. They remain strong in their convictions. And then they they aim to pass those convictions on to their children. But then the second generation, their children, they tend to take them for granted. These aren't convictions that they've come to by their own study and by their own experience, it's just how they were raised. And so they so easily just go through the motions without ever coming to understand the importance of these truths. And so the second generation tends to be formal. And because they they aren't impressed by the truths that their parents taught them, they don't pass them on to their children. And so by the third generation, there's apostasy. The third generation is faithless, never having been gripped by the religious convictions of the church. And so churches tend to go from faithful to formal to faithless in three generations. And so children, you ought to take special care to this message. Build yourselves up in the faith. Don't just regurgitate these truths because your parents told you to. But truly feel them in your souls. Write them in your hearts. Let them mean something to you. Don't just let your religion be up in your head. but Let it be in your heart. Spend time in your Bible. Read it. Memorize it. Pray over it. The Bible isn't something that that we just do in church. It's it's the word of God, and you need to learn to love it. Not because your parents told you to, not because I tell you to, but because God wants you to. Build yourselves up in the faith. The second thing that Jude instructs us to do in, in order to keep the love of God is to pray in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit assists us in our prayers, helping to keep ourselves in the love of God. The Puritans considered prayer to be the key to heaven. It's by prayer that all our spiritual desires may be granted unto us. And so if we desire to be built up in our faith, we must pray. If we desire to be kept in the love of God, we must pray. Remember, you have no power in yourself to love God. Our love of God has a divine source. And so in order to keep ourselves in the love of God, it must be given to us from above. That's why ultimately it's it's God who keeps us from falling away in the faith. 1 Peter tells us that, that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And Jude himself tells us, tells us in verse 24 that it's God who is able to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before him. Yet we have a duty to use the means that God has given us to be kept in his love. We have a duty to build ourselves up and to pray in the spirit That we may be kept in the love of God. And prayer is an effective means to that end. Thomas Watson said that prayer is the spiritual leech which sucks the poison of sin out of the soul. And it's also like adding fuel to the fire of faith. If, If your love of God has grown cold, if your faith has been weak, then stir up your soul by prayer. Awaken the spirit in your heart. Pray for more of the spirit in your heart. You see, your sin makes your heart grow cold. But the spirit warms your heart and softens your heart. And he's called the spirit of supplications. So the more of the spirit that you have, the more healthy your prayer life will be. That's why examining your prayer life is is a good gauge of the liveliness of your faith. Do you pray often? Can it be said of you that that you pray without ceasing? Are your prayers weak and infrequent? Pray for more of the Spirit. And pray for His help in, in maintaining a healthy prayer life. By this, you will be kept in the love of God. If you are in Christ, you have the precious gift of the love of God. Persevere in that love. Guard it. Keep it. Watch over it. By building yourselves up in the faith, and by praying in the Holy Spirit, looking constantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We ask, Lord, that you would. Keep us in the love of God. Work in our hearts, Lord, by your spirit. We ask that you would pour your spirit upon us. Lord, cause us to pray. Help us to be built up in the faith. That we may be kept in the love of God. May we never fall away. May we not become formal in our religion. May we not become faithless. Help us to be kept. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.